Hey guys, welcome to the 966. This is a podcast and show that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia and beyond. Uh, from the two guys who produce the most widely read daily email newsletter on the kingdom since 2009. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Saudi Arabia's 91st National Day, residential mortgages in the kingdom, and the latest in U.S.-Saudi relations. Uh, but first, Richard, what's your one big thing for Saudi Arabia this week? Um, outside of those three, uh, I think it's notable that uh, Saudi Telecom just floated uh, an IPO for essentially a subsidiary, 20% of a subsidiary, for close to a billion dollars. Um, it's remarkable, really, and it's a testament to what they've tried to do in terms of their stock market, which is make it much more accessible, uh, best practices brought up to international uh, standards in every way, uh, that you know, they're, they're shedding, as I said, a subsidiary and 20% of it for close to a billion. And it's um, it's 130%, 130 times oversubscribed. I mean, people are really interested in this. Uh, obviously, everyone is familiar with the Aramco IPO, but the Aqua Power IPO is close to a billion this year. The Saudi uh, stock market itself is going to issue an IPO in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just exactly what they want uh, to achieve in terms of uh, deal flow, <clears throat> people coming into the into the stock market, uh, Saudi residents having an opportunity to be involved in in uh, equity markets, capital markets. Uh, it's it's really a good story uh, and and something I think uh, Saudi should be proud of. It's a, it's it's a, a big deal. Yeah, it's sort of the latest in a long string of IPOs that really started with Aramco. Um, there's like a, it's sort of like a thing now, um, which is, which is great. Um, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so that's my interesting thing. Uh, there's plenty of them though. <laughs> there always is. Um, <laughs> mine is the, uh, the possibility of a world cup in Saudi Arabia, which was interesting. <laughs> this was actually a report from two weeks ago. Um, but Saudi Arabia and Egypt are interested in co-hosting the 2030 FIFA world cup. Um, this is a, according to a report in Al Monitor. Um, it's it's really the first time that two nations have co-hosted, and it's what going to be eight years after uh, Qatar. Yeah. So uh, it'll be interesting if they to get see it. Yeah, if they get it, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that comes to to light. But uh, Saudi Arabia sort of missed out on hosting the international sort of element on this, and uh, we have a great interview coming up um, on the subject with the G20. Um, but the pandemic sort of cancel the in-person part of that. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get uh, the World Cup and sort of it would be another chance for them to sort of open up, um, have a bunch of visitors in. So I think that's a really interesting. Um, all right. So I, let's I agree. Uh, just to add to that, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell from that report. Who's more interested, the Egyptians or the Saudis? Um, but I gather the um, you know, in general, the the FIFA is is looking for co-hosting bids, and so I guess this is smart for the Saudis and the Egyptians to go in together. It brings up it brings up another topic, which I think is curious because people could get all upset about sports washing, sports washing, uh, as if uh, as if it's a new thing, <laughs> or if there haven't been country after country after country that have has used uh, sports uh, for diplomatic purposes and to try and uh, do a little PR and project a better image. And um, I just, I think it's a silly conversation. You know, Saudi Arabia has 
is spending significant amounts of money, opening its its uh, borders, inviting people to come in. I mean, these are all to the good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's a great it's a, if they, they got to twenty thirty. Yeah, it's a it's a tourism thing, and it's like you know, it's really economics. I mean, they're trying to get people into the kingdom to be interested in the fact that the kingdom's opening up. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to the first topic here. The 91st National Day was uh, actually yesterday. Um, commemorates the 91st anniversary of the kingdom's unification um, under King Abdulaziz. It's sort of like Saudi Arabia's July 4th. Um, big nationalistic celebrations across the kingdom. Um, it, it's really a meaningful day for the kingdom. Um, Richard, I guess my first question, um, among many, but do you, you lived in Saudi Arabia. Do you remember your first national day living there? <laughs> I lived in, well, this is what's fun about this. This is why Saudi Arabia is endlessly interesting to me. Um, it's like a vast ongoing experiment, uh, that's, you know, going on generations now. I mean, our, our, Westerners can say, let's say American conceptions of, of, of uh, National Day, 4th of July. We consider the founders. Uh, we try and take stock of where we are. You know, of late, that's a little disconcerting because a lot of what the framework that was created is not is a little creaky at the moment. Mm -hmm. But there's always the assumption that it's, uh, you know, it's we've done this every year and it's part and parcel of liberal democracy. It's part and parcel of being American. You know, our our historical narrative, this is, you know, Fourth of July is intrinsic to it, uh, which is why I think uh, so many people have difficulty understanding Saudi Arabia. I mean, I'll go to your question, when I lived full time in Saudi and obviously I've traveled back and forth, you know, all the time over the last 30 years, uh, National Day wasn't celebrated. We have to remember that um, you know, the country is unified by uh, Abdulaziz al Saud, Ibn Saud, in, in 32, officially, 1932, it was officially unified. This was, you know, a country that's, uh, you know, size of half the U.S., 95% of it is, is uh, close to being desert just a hodgepodge of tribes, clans, you know, it, it's just, you know, a, a few, uh, you know, on each coast, uh, some trading cities, obviously Jeddah and, and uh, Mecca and Medina on the Red Sea, you know, an uh, interior capital. Uh, it was, it's just a completely diverse and spread out, uh, disconnected rural country. And on top of that, it's informed by a very conservative uh, interpretation of Islam. I mean, it, it the initial the initial relationship between the Al Saud and the Al Wahhab, um, uh, you know, is was based on an interpretation of Islam that was extremely, uh, let's say, it, it it was intended to be very simplifying. So, it, it, no, I no I, idolatry. Simplification, you know, you know, on the flag it says there is no god but Allah, uh, and Muhammad is his prophet or his messenger. That's your inf that's your informing principle. There is not to be anything else other than that. You can't have shrines. You can't even you know put people to bury. There's not even headstones. Uh, 
important uh, important things related to prophets or Muhammad himself. People, they didn't worry about that. They just let it go. Well, they bulldoze it. It's just not something you pay attention to. So <clears throat> um, the fact that there's a national day is in Saudi Arabia is, is aspirational, really, because you've got a country. So it was, it was announced, the first national day was 2005, King Abdullah, King uh, Salman's predecessor, authorized a national day, which was quite novel. I mean, because for most Saudis, it's, you know, it's clan, it's tribe, religion, somewhere along their country. Uh, but they're trying to, the whole purpose of National Day and the way they celebrate it now and make it a focus is to try and nudge this along to uh, a different sort of affinity. And, and so it's, it's, like I said, it's a grand experiment. It's a whole cultural paradigm shift. It's an attempt to move allegiances, you know, from, from, from tribe to Islam, which obviously is not going to be superseded, but and 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 introduce the idea of a state and uh, you know what it means to be a Saudi. What it means to be Saudi doesn't mean you know what tribe you're involved with. Doesn't mean if you're you're Muslim, it means you're a Saudi national. So this is a grand ongoing experiment, which from the from our perspective, it wouldn't even occur to us. None of this is in question, but for Saudi Arabia, it's a, it's a cultural shift they're trying to achieve that is, as I said, aspirational. And therefore, to me, extremely interesting. So all that to say, you know, all these, all these, you know, the air shows, all the things, I think it's fascinating when you look at the deeper context. Yeah. And it's also like a, a way for them to look forward and to sort of see what they've accomplished, but see what's coming up. And uh, with Vision 2030, they've got some, they've got obviously got um, young leadership, not just, you know, at the highest levels, but throughout the um, throughout the, the entire government, there's there's something to be proud about, and there's something to sort of look forward to. That's but that's that was a really good sort of background on like how just the mindset of each Saudi going into you know this this holiday. I think that's that's really cool. Yeah, um, and like you mentioned, it, there there was just a, a lot going on over there yesterday. Yeah. Uh, air shows, everything. So yeah. it's it's cool. Yeah, it's and it's meaningful. So I mean, and and uh, so every 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 national day. You know, this is the 91st, quote unquote, you know, the, it's actually the 16th, right, in terms of actually being celebrated. Um, but uh, I get, I get why they're trying to do this. And from our perspective, it's a, it would be a positive thing for people to, for them to not look at themselves necessarily as an <clears throat> aggregation of tribes, or a Muslim country only. Uh, but as a, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a Saudi state, right. Let's talk a little bit, um, switch over to the economy a bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about residential mortgages in Saudi Arabia. It's an, sort of an interesting topic, um, but there was news this week that uh, residential mortgages in Saudi Arabia are up 1,000% since 2016, which basically means that in 2016, residential mortgages were really hard to get or very scarce. <laughs> um, this sort of, this topic is interesting, I think, to both of us because it 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 really encapsulates the economic transformation happening in Saudi Arabia, because what you what you need is financial regulations to make mortgages easier to get. Um, but you also need more housing. Um, you need a larger middle class that can afford houses. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a booming younger population. They need housing. Um, this is really good news for Saudi Arabia that they are increasing access to mortgages. Um, but um, 
you know, there's a lot, I think there's a long way to go. Um, they just announced that um, foreigners can now own a single property in Saudi Arabia. The whole residential sector is really changing in Saudi Arabia. This is a, a way, a bellwether really for how their economic reforms are going. Um, I guess, uh, Richard, I'm interested in asking you a little bit about um, how important this is for Saudi Arabia and then also where the sector can go from here. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yes, I agree, hundred percent, Lucian. What you just said, and and um, I apologize. I always go back to sort of the origins, why they're doing what they're doing. And uh, if you ask me, what the Saudis learned from uh, the Arab Spring, quote unquote, Arab Spring, two thousand eleven, was uh, not necessarily forms of of government. Um, or, you know, some regimes fell, some didn't. You could sort of, uh, you could see the disconnect between the population and the regime. You could see others where it was a little more authentic. Uh, but what they took out of was governance. They said, all right, you know, whatever the regime, we have to provide better governance. I think that started under King Abdullah. I think it's just freight train accelerated under uh, King Salman and, and uh, via MBS. Um, and fundamental to that for them is uh, it doesn't matter what happens in 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 our uh, neighborhood or our neighbors um, if we can't get our home economy set specifically dealing with this youth bulge that you mentioned the demographic and that starts with employment and then it goes to housing and so when you're seeing this kind of pro progress it's fundamental to their ability to stay ahead of this youth bulge. Because the other interesting thing about this um, housing spike, and uh, as you said, it's, you know, 100 times more than 2016. Is that what you said? A, a thousand percent up. So 10 times. Up. Yeah. It's especially important because um, the whole nature of um, households is changing in Saudi Arabia. I mean, you, you, for, you have extended families living on the same roof traditionally. I mean, three generations, that's the norm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, increasingly, younger couples, especially because more women work, and you see, you see all sorts of, of, of surveys and polls now that, you know, when a young Saudi man wants to go look for a bride, you know, I think 85% of them prioritize that a woman works. So, but increasingly, these, you know, these couples aren't staying underneath the, the, the family tent so to speak you know they, they've they've moved out and they're looking for housing on their own because they, they can afford it because that's the that's a, a younger generation so uh it's essential that they get this right it's fundamental to their existence that they get this right in terms of employment and housing and all these things they need to address this youth demographic so this is good news Absolutely. It, it, it's also it's reflective of a lot of regulatory reforms that are happening right now. I just wanted to mention um, a, a topic that I thought was really interesting related to this was the Saudi Arabia talked about in 2016 and then eventually enacted a white land tax, um, which it deals with the actual property ownership um, in and around major cities, but especially Riyadh. And what was happening was there were large tracts of land owned by you know wealthy individuals, and because there was no tax on this land, there was no incentive for them to develop it at all. And when Saudi Arabia enacted a 2.5 percent uh, tax on this land, it sort of made these owners say, "Wait a minute! Like this land isn't just a holding of mine. I have to 
do something with it, sell it, or keep it and understand that it's costing me money just to own it. It seems like a very simple concept in you know the US and the Western world, but in Saudi Arabia, it was quite revolutionary. Um, and it, it isn't so much about the revenue that it generated, but more about, hey, like, you know, get with the program here. We need this land is valuable. Um, you can develop it and make some money, but like this, you need to be contributing here one way or the other. So I think that's cool. It's all part of the sort of, you know, experiment here going on where you're getting Saudis, young Saudis, old Saudis, rich Saudis, poor Saudis to buy into what's going on. And when everybody buys in, um, you know, you you get results that that are nationwide. And I think that's cool. I, I, I spot on. And, and the fact is not everybody buys in. That's one of the problems of this. But you, you, you're that white land tax, a hugely significant political decision, because this was essentially insider deals, mm -hmm. where people who had access to the, to, to, the, to the family and to the government, you know, were able to secure significantly, I mean, really massively and valuable plots of land and then to sit on them, like you said. So, so essentially that decision was saying, we're taking money directly out of your pocket. Right. You, 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 you influential Saudi, whoever you are, for the per larger purposes of the, the country and what we're trying to accomplish down the road. And it's like so many things in Saudi Arabia, before you can do what you want to do, let's say provide housing, well, a greater stock you know, of housing and also the, the funding, the mortgage uh, infrastructure available to, to make it possible for people to buy a house. You have to do six, 10, 18 other steps prior to that, this mm -hmm. being one. And some of them are politically fraught, like this one was, the white land, uh, white land tax. So anyway, yeah, again, a, a, a story that actually is, has a much deeper tale behind it. But it's a good story. I mean, it's great that we're, they've gotten to this point. Let's uh, let's wrap this up with a sort of a discussion. There's been some news this week um, and last week. Um, you know, the U.S.-Saudi relationship under Biden was going always going to be different than under President Trump. Um, it just the nature of the beast, uh, Democrat, Republican, it sort of always is this way. And you can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but in the last two weeks, the U.S.-Saudi relationship has sort of seen a couple of positive notes, really two of them. One is a uh, the announcement of a military services contract um, for $500 uh, million for uh, services for um, equipment already provided to Saudi Arabia. And the second is the announcement that uh, Jake Sullivan will be visiting Saudi Arabia in the near, near future. He'd be the highest level Biden official to visit so far in the uh, under Biden's uh, administration. Um, President Trump obviously played things a little differently. He he personally visited Saudi Arabia on his first overseas trip. Um, Richard, could you talk a little bit about the U.S.-Saudi relationship as it stands right now um, and sort of the meaning of these small victories uh, that we saw this week? <laughs> Broad question. <laughs> How much time do we have? We're, we're trying to keep this short. Yeah, we? we're trying to keep it short. I'm sorry. I'll try Holy, to keep them a little narrower. Holy crap. But, um, <laughs> uh, well, let's talk, about, um, let's talk about Trump and the Saudis. The Saudis... Uh, Saudi relationships, be it uh, personal or, or uh, uh, diplomatic or, or business or otherwise, they, they, like, they like to have a, traditionally, they've liked to have a personal relationship, feel close. They like to have access to the very top. Mm -hmm. 
So they've always wanted to be able to, so, you know, they like, you know, friends of the president in terms of the U.S. because of their primary uh, external relationship. They love friends of the president because uh, they feel like that's, that protects them and, and, and gives them, a, a, you know, a, a particular proximity to decision making. Um, they played Trump beautifully as, as they're smart businessmen. I mean, the, the, the way you, you, you uh, uh, they appealed to his vanity, they complimented him, they said, we can help you on any number of things. And it was not only just flattery, they, have, they can be helpful on, obviously, energy issues, uh, intelligence, counterterrorism, uh, Islamic issues. So they're, they're a valuable ally in, in, in many ways, but they position themselves nicely with President Trump. The problem is that it's, it costs them dearly is that it became just so focused on that relationship and it moved well beyond the, the normal channels, the professional diplomatic channels that really you need to sustain and you really should use if you're working with a diplomatic relationship with any, any external country. I think Biden has been very... Um, directed and clear that we're going to move it back into normal channels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good for everybody. If you ask me, I think it's good for the Saudis. I think it's good for us. Saudis need to readjust. You know, they can't put all their, their beans in this pot, the presidential pot. They have to, they have to reach out. You see Prince, uh, uh, Princess Rima, the, the Saudi ambassador, Her Royal Highness uh, Rima bin Bandar, you know, going out to states that they have economic relationships and try and broadening the network. And, and, and it's, they've done it, tried it before. They should always do it. It's a good thing. Um, so basically, Biden said, I'm president of the United States. My counterpart is not MBS, as important as he is, and everyone understands he's important. My counterpart is King Selma. It's mm -hmm. a approach. Um, I know that doesn't make everybody happy over there, in Saudi, but it's a healthy approach that will turn out, I think, uh, end up better than the last one. Um, I also think, to be honest, someday MBS is going to be king. It's important to try and clear the road for that, which is why I think it's good that the Jamal Khashoggi findings were released. I think it's good that whatever's you know, uh, coming out about the 9-11 uh, investigations is coming out. All these things need to be out there so you can start again, in essence. And I'm not at all sure that MBS will be or when or how he might be received in the U.S., but you can't have that unless you move all, you get through all this other mess. Mm -hmm. So my uh, Trump-Biden, what I've liked about the Biden situation and the Biden approach is it's much more professional, it's much more channel, proper channel-oriented, and I think it's also been a massively more um, transparent and easily interpreted to the Saudis. So I would say it's a good thing. Let's end it with that. Um, before we go, I just want to remind our listeners to subscribe. There's a little subscribe button on Apple, iTunes, uh, Spotify, YouTube. We'll have this podcast up on there. Um, if you can hit subscribe, that actually helps us a lot. Um, and yeah, so we'll be doing this every week. Um, thanks for listening.